Welcome to the Youth Fusion International Law Podcast Series. This is a podcast series focused on the status of nuclear weapons under international law. My name is Gabriela Majatulic, and today, following our discussion on the legality of the threat and use of nuclear weapons with Ellen and Emila in the previous episode, we will look at another very relevant aspect of nuclear weapons in international law, namely the possession of nuclear weapons as well as the obligation for disarmament. Our expert joining us today is Dr. John Burroughs, who is a senior analyst for the New York City-based Lawyers Committee on Nuclear Policy. He has represented LCNP in nuclear non-proliferation treaty meetings and negotiations on the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons and was a member of the Marshall Islands legal team in its nuclear disarmament cases in the International Court of Justice. He has also taught international law as an adjunct professor at Rogers Law School and I'm glad that he agreed to share some of his insights and knowledge with us today. Welcome, John. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, um, as I've already uh, mentioned in the previous episode, um, the TPW entered into force in 2021, in the beginning of 2021. And in this ban movement, oftentimes slogans are used um, stating that because of this, nuclear weapons are now um, illegal, just like in general. And today we will look mainly at the possession of nuclear weapons and and also um, the disarmament obligation. And I just want to ask you, um, yeah, again, uh, maybe to state something about whether, um, yeah, this T- the TPNW has any effect on members uh, on on state parties that haven't or in states that have not signed it, so that are not parties to the treaty. Yeah, it's actually a complex question, uh, but. Uh, Just to begin with, uh, a treaty, whatever the treaty is, applies directly uh, to the states that are members of uh, the treaty. Mm -hmm. So the obligations set on a treaty apply to the states that have signed and ratified the treaty. And in the case of the TPNW, that's about 65 uh, states now. Uh, and it includes some uh, uh, important um, states like, let's just say, Philippines, South Africa, uh, but it does not include any country that possesses nuclear weapons or any country that is in a nuclear alliance. Although Philippines is interesting in that regard because it's um, in at least uh, a de facto military alliance with, uh, with the United States. Uh, <clears throat> so the obligation uh, of non-possession of nuclear weapons uh, applies only to those states that have joined the treaty. Now, what about the obligations of not threatening and not using nuclear weapons? Well, to begin with, those those obligations apply to the states that have joined the treaty. However, uh, those obligations are also, um, to some large degree, part of general international law applying to all states. And uh, so the TPNW reinforces the existing illegality of threat or use of nuclear weapons. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, the TPNW has 
a magnificent uh, preamble, which sort of um, summarizes uh, development of principles in the UN in particular over decades. <clears throat> and uh, in the preamble, there's a recitation, which was supplied by the International Committee of the Red Cross of rules and principles of international humanitarian law applying to use of nuclear weapons. <clears throat> um, and the preamble says that the state's parties making the treaty consider that the use of nuclear weapons violates uh, international humanitarian law. And then uh, the treaty itself uh, in its obligations prohibits threat and use of nuclear weapons. So all of that uh, reinforces the existing illegality of threatened use of nuclear weapons under general international law. Now I should say here that the nuclear armed states and their allies do not accept that the threat and use of nuclear weapons is categorically illegal, uh, in, illegal in all cases. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, so, uh, just so there's no confusion on that point. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely. And we've already um, yeah, discussed more in more detail the different uh, legal tools on this um, in the previous episode. And um, um, yeah, I just want to ask you right now and in, in this connection again, um, do you think the possession of nuclear weapons actually constitutes a general threat um, of their use? Because um, kind of what is actually the purpose of possessing nuclear weapons if we don't threaten to use them? And if the possession already constitutes a threat, um, is it illegal to possess them according to the 1996 ICJ, um, ICJ decision? No, it is not. Uh, there is uh, an obligation to negotiate the elimination of nuclear arsenals. That's under the Non-Proliferation Treaty and under general international law as uh, the International Court of Justice explained in its 1996 opinion, but there is no universal obligation not to uh, possess nuclear weapons. Uh, so far as uh, many countries are subject to such an obligation under the NPT, Regional Nuclear Weapon Free Zones, Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, but there's no obligation applying to every country uh, in the world. Uh, as to whether it's a threat to possess uh, nuclear weapons, you know, you, uh, a country could possess nuclear weapons by having disassembled components stored on its territory that they could uh, reconstitute into nuclear weapons. And they could possess uh, these nuclear components and essentially nuclear weapons without having any doctrines about using them, uh, mm -hmm. without making any threats about using them. That is a, a far, far, far different situation than the one that actually exists, where um, governments beginning with the US and Russia have nuclear weapons in large numbers in the hundreds deployed and ready to be used within 
a very short period of time, uh, within uh, a half hour, essentially, in the case of, of the US and Russia with their uh, land-based uh, missiles. So that's a very different kind of possession than than you know, simply having components stored in your territory or some stage in, in, in between the two. Uh, <clears throat> so whether uh, deployment in its very kind of um, a far reaching sense that I just described where they're deployed and ready to be used, whether that constitutes a threat or an illegal threat is uh, the subject of, of debate. Uh, the International Court of Justice in its 1996 opinion said it was not going to pass upon the legality of uh, the policy of nuclear deterrence. And nuclear deterrence as it's ordinarily understood does involve um, possession of nuclear weapons ready to be used pursuant to doctrines indicating when when they might be used uh, so the icj did not address that that question on the other hand the icj said that <clears throat> it is illegal to threaten the use of a weapon which would violate international humanitarian law governing the conduct of warfare and the icj said that a threat of force uh, under the UN Charter is illegal in the same way that a, an aggressive use of force under the UN Charter uh, mm -hmm. is illegal. They're, they're equivalent. So um, clearly uh, the ICJ has in mind that there are some threats uh, which uh, are uh, legal, uh, can be understood in legal terms and which can, <coughs> can be illegal if they're aggressive or if they threaten the use of weapons, nuclear weapons, which would violate international humanitarian law. I'm sorry to uh, be going on about this, but, but let me just conclude mm -hmm. by saying, so uh, it's quite clear that if there's a specific and credible threat. Mm -hmm. uh, so President Vladimir Putin says, if you NATO countries interfere militarily uh, in our invasion of Ukraine, we will do something unthinkable, clearly meaning resort to nuclear arms. That's uh, a threat that can be understood in legal terms, and uh, it's clearly illegal because it's part of the aggressive invasion of Ukraine in violation of UN Charter. And, uh, you know, I would say in my organization, the Lawyers Committee on Nuclear Policy would say it's illegal too because it's illegal in any circumstance to use nuclear weapons because it would violate international humanitarian law governing the conduct of, of warfare. Um, then, you know, other examples of fairly specific threats were the, uh, the threats exchanged between North Korea and the United States in uh, 2017, which were rather 
florid, rhetorical, uh, but uh, there was real concern at the time that mm -hmm. the two countries were actually going to go to war. So I think those clearly qualify as threats and then, you know, uh, we would say uh, illegal threats because at a minimum it would involve the, the use would involve the violation of international humanitarian law. But um, let's maybe go back to the possession and um, the concept of deterrence. Could you maybe explain what deterrence is? Why would you have nuclear weapons? Well, deterrence is a slippery term. Uh, <clears throat> Let's leave nuclear weapons uh, aside for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> analysts and governments would say by maintaining um, capable military forces, <coughs> they are deterring, they're dissuading another country from using military force against mm -hmm. the country that has those capable uh, military uh, forces. So, uh, you know, there's a general sense of, of deterrence. In the case of nuclear deterrence, um, a core uh, element of nuclear deterrence has been uh, that uh, essentially do not attack us with nuclear weapons because we will respond with nuclear weapons. So to persuade or dissuade another government from launching a nuclear attack because they would face the same kind of uh, attack in return. Uh, and um, governments and analysts uh, sometimes try to convey uh, that that is the only or the main element of nuclear deterrence. But uh, the reality is that um, uh, states with nuclear weapons have used their possession and their deployment of nuclear weapons uh, to uh, deter um, an attack with non-nuclear arms. Uh, the U.S. had that and NATO had that position for decades during the Cold War saying that, you know, if the Soviet Union rolled into Europe with tanks that uh, US and NATO would respond with uh, nuclear weapons first. We've just seen an instance and we're still seeing an instance where Russia is using a nuclear threat as a shield for its non-nuclear uh, invasion of Ukraine. And there are other instances of this as well. So uh, deterrence can cover a wide range of sins or virtues, depending on how you look at it. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, well, let me just um, say which, nuclear, which states possess nuclear weapons today, um, in case, and just to remind ourselves, um, so we have um, the five permanent members of the Security Council. So the US, Russia, UK, France, and China. And then there's also India, Pakistan, North Korea, and then Israel, but Israel has never publicly acknowledged that it has nuclear weapons. 
But um, then there's also a large number of countries um, who are stationing nuclear weapons, for example, um, Germany or um, Turkey, who are hosting US nuclear weapons. Um, can we kind of um, distinguish between the possession of nuclear weapons and then also stationing of them in terms of international law? So um, yeah, what does it mean in legal terms to possess a nuclear weapon? You know, there are very few uh, definitions of uh, uh, nuclear weapons, but, but the term is uh, still uh, pretty well understood. It's, you know, a weapon powered by a full-scale uh, nuclear explosion. <clears throat> um, so if you possess uh, the uh, devices that, that result in nuclear explosion, uh, explosion, you possess uh, nuclear weapons. Now, in the case uh, of hosting of nuclear weapons by, I believe it's six uh, NATO countries that host them, mm -hmm. those weapons are under the control of uh, the United States. Uh, however, uh, under this practice of nuclear sharing, it is uh, supposed to be the case that in time of war, uh, when the weapons were going to be used, uh, control would be turned over to uh, the countries that are hosting them and their air forces, uh, and they would fly their own aircraft, maybe may supplied by the U.S., but still aircraft that they own with their own pilots, and they would deliver uh, uh, the nuclear uh, weapons. Uh, um, so it's a very peculiar arrangement actually. And you know, one thing that's concerning about present circumstances is it could be that Russia and Belarus are moving toward having a uh, similar uh, arrangement. Mm. Uh, you know, is this a violation of the non-proliferation treaty? Well, it would seem to be because under the first two articles of the NPT, uh, a, a country is not supposed to possess in any manner uh, nuclear weapons if it is a non-nuclear weapon state, un you know, under the terms of, of the NPT. And uh, Secretary of State Dean Rusk uh, said back around 1970 when this question was discussed, I think in the, in the U.S. Senate, uh, he said, well, they, they don't possess them because they don't control them. And if a war came and, and control was turned over to them, the NPT would no longer apply. Well, you know, this, this is sort of a crazy argument because there's no reason to say that the NPT would stop applying in time of war, you know, and you want the NPT to especially to yeah. apply in time of war. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, another argument that was made in defense of nuclear sharing is that it was a practice that predated the NPT and it was, quote, grandfathered in. Uh, so it was accepted as a practice predating the NPT. Well, you know, 
it could be, and it, I'm sure it was the case that a lot of European countries understood that was happening. But it's not necessary. It's probably not true that all of the parties to the NPT understood and accepted that nuclear sharing would be continued to be considered legal uh, under under the NPT. And you know, this nuclear sharing. One of the problems with it is that it serves as a precedent for other nuclear sharing. And we're possibly seeing that in the case of Russia mm. and, and Belarus. And you can imagine it in other circumstances. What if Pakistan were to share its nuclear arsenal with Saudi Arabia and, uh, and so on? So it's, it's really, it's a problem that needs to be uh, addressed in the NPT, but it's a very, very, tough problem, especially now that Russia has invaded Ukraine. Mm, yeah. Well, interesting. Um, so if we in general look at all the states in this world and how we could categorize them, um, we could maybe say there are non-nuclear weapon states under the NPT, nuclear weapon states, and we've already talked about and there's some sharing. Um, stationing of nuclear weapons there, but um, then there's also state parties to the TPNW, and um, then those who have signed the TPNW, the new ban treaty, but have not ratified it. I guess, I think those are the main categories that we could look at in terms of whether it would be legal or illegal for those um, different kinds of states um, to possess nuclear weapons um, based on the treaties and customary international law that they have, um, yeah, that applies to them. Could you, um, could you go like through those um, different categories and make a statement um, whether it is legal or illegal for those states to have nuclear weapons possessed them? Yeah, this is a really important point. And that is that most countries in the world are obligated not to uh, possess uh, uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, almost all countries are parties to the non-proliferation treaty and countries known as non-nuclear weapon states uh, that under that treaty, namely all of the parties except for US, UK, uh, France, Russia, and China, which are the acknowledged nuclear weapon states under the NPT, all of the other countries are obligated not to possess nuclear weapons. Well, this is made uh, somewhat complicated by what we just talked about is that mm -hmm. uh, like a half dozen countries are sharing mm -hmm. uh, so-called uh, US uh, nuclear bombs. <clears throat> and there's also the fact that there are alliances which are predicated on the possible use of nuclear weapons, uh, NATO, but also uh, alliances that the U.S. has in uh, Asia, uh, U.S. and Australia, U.S. and Japan, mm -hmm. uh, U.S. and South Korea. Uh, so once you take all of that into account, mm -hmm. uh, the NPT uh, doesn't sound as powerful as it does when you start out by saying non-nuclear weapon states are mm -hmm. obligated not to have nuclear weapons. Uh, but there's another very important set of treaties 
And that is the regional nuclear weapon free zones. Started out in Latin, Latin America with the Treaty of Tlatelolco in, I think it was 1967, uh, essentially made Latin America uh, nuclear weapon free. There's an obligation for states in that region not to have nuclear weapons. And uh, nuclear free zones, regional nuclear free zones were established uh, elsewhere in the world as well, uh, in the South Pacific, in uh, Southeast Asia, in Central Asia, uh, mm -hmm. in Africa. Uh, these are a very important part of uh, the sort of architecture of uh, nuclear nonproliferation uh, in the world. And in a way, you could see the TPNW as building upon uh, the regional nuclear weapon free zones, because many of the members of the TPNW are also members of the regional nuclear weapon free zones. Not all of them, you know, let's take, you know, Austria or Ireland or others, but uh, a lot of them are members of the regional nuclear weapon free zones. Well, if you add the regional zones together with the TPNW, uh, you have, you know, strong majority of country, countries and essentially the global south, which have renounced the acquisition of nuclear weapons and, and, sub, and not subject to uh, nuclear sharing or nuclear alliances, which are, you know, undermine uh, the NPT. So, so we could say, okay, obviously all the 65 states um, who are part of the TPNW, they are not allowed to have nuclear weapons. Then we have um, the non-nuclear weapon states under the NPT. They are not allowed to possess their own nuclear weapons, but in some cases they have been allowed to station nuclear weapons or it's been tolerated. And then um, what about states who've never been part of the NPT or who are not part of the NPT um, right now? Um, could um, Some people have suggested that a new custom has emerged um, that kind of says there is um, that it is prohibited to proliferate um, or acquire new nuclear weapons if you already have them. Um, yeah, um, so this would probably also apply to countries such as uh, South Sudan or um, I guess even India, Pakistan and Israel, or even though they already possess nuclear weapons. Um, so um, could you maybe speak about, um, yeah, whether such a custom exists or is there some law that could apply to those countries? Well, let me uh, approach this from a slightly different angle. First of all, it's really important. Uh, it's a crucial fact that from the beginning, uh, India, Israel, Pakistan were not parties uh, mm -hmm. to the non-proliferation treaty. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, pretty early on, you know, India already had a nuclear weapon, uh, sorry, Israel also already had a nuclear weapons program while the NPT was being negotiated. And India and Pakistan uh, acquired, you know, tested uh, India tested nuclear weapons shortly after the NPT entered into force. Uh, and uh, Pakistan had a weapons program as well. They didn't test until uh, the 1990s. <clears throat> um, so this was 
those countries sort of refusing to go along with the idea that certain countries would be acknowledged to have nuclear weapons by the NPT, the five countries we've already mentioned who are also the permanent members of the Security Council. Um, they didn't accept this sort of discriminatory approach to, to global affairs. Uh, they've been joined by North Korea, uh, you know, in the 1990s and, and onward, which left the NPT uh, and uh, acquired uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, so this um, is a very important fact about global uh, nuclear politics and uh, it will have to be uh, addressed. Uh, you know, nuclear disarmament has to encompass all countries that mm -hmm. have uh, uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, and, you know, this is, um, yeah, it's a challenge. <laughs> um, so what about the legal aspect of this? Well, you know, you mentioned, uh, can I t talk about the Marshall Islands nuclear disarmament cases? Definitely. Yeah, so uh, the Marshall Islands uh, was a um, territory uh, uh, dependency of the United States. And the, uh, the United States, this is in the, in the Pacific, the United States uh, tested dozens of nuclear weapons, atmospheric, not underground, mm -hmm. uh, uh, nuclear weapons there in the 1940s and, uh, and 1950s. So eventually uh, the Marshall Islands became a independent or quasi-independent. There are some conditions put upon their independence in the agreement they have with the United States. <clears throat> and those negotiations were partly conducted or mainly conducted by an amazing man named uh, Tony De Bruyne, uh, <clears throat> a Marshallese leader who was uh, an opponent of and a researcher about nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands, uh, helped negotiate independence for the Marshall Islands, and also was a leader in the uh, Paris climate change negotiations in uh, 2015. Uh, he headed up the High Ambition Coalition, which uh, was able to get the target of limiting uh, the increase in temperature to one and a half degrees uh, uh, Celsius. Uh, so uh, an amazing man, and I, I was privileged to uh, get to know him as a member of the Marshall Islands legal team. Unfortunately, he died in, in 2017. So the Marshall Islands uh, decided to bring cases in the International Court of Justice, you know, led by Tony De Bruyne, against countries which possess nuclear weapons, all nine of them. Uh, mm -hmm. And the case was started in 2014. Mm -hmm. If anybody wants to uh, look into this, uh, three uh, records of three of the cases are on the ICJ website. Those were the cases against uh, India, Pakistan, and the United Kingdom. Mm. Uh, and in the UK case, uh, 
we submitted a brief, it's called Memorial in the International Court of Justice, uh, the opening memorial, which in some depth went into uh, the disarmament obligation under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, Article 6 of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and also under uh, international law uh, generally. <clears throat> um, so in the case of the UK, it's a member. The reason uh, it was only against those three countries is that they have accepted subject to some limitations, the jurisdiction of the ICJ. Uh, the other six countries have not accepted the jurisdiction of ICJ in general. You know, they can be subject to, to it under you know, specific treaties or they can voluntarily come before the court. And you know, this is a normal procedure. Uh, and the Marshall Islands invited them to voluntarily come before the court to discuss the disarmament obligation, but they declined. So that's why I was only against those three countries which have accepted jurisdiction. Uh, again, uh, India, Pakistan, UK. Uh, so in the case of the UK, it's a member of the NPT, it's subject to Article 6 of the NPT, mm. which requires states to pursue in good faith negotiations on cessation of the nuclear arms race at an early date and on nuclear disarmament. Um, so, um, we, you know, we explained, okay, what's the history of that? Uh, what do the commitments made in review conferences uh, uh, elucidate about the obligation and so on? Um, but we also argued with respect to India and Pakistan that they were subject to a general or a customary uh, uh, obligation of nuclear disarmament negotiating nuclear disarmament um, because they're not members of the NPT. So article six couldn't be applied to them. And we said that uh, that obligation is customary, first of all, based on the fact that there's very wide adherence, many states parties, almost all countries in the world are parties to the NPT. Secondly, there are general assembly resolutions going back to the very beginning which were unanimous in the 1950s concerning the imperative of uh, nuclear disarmament and many general assembly resolutions uh, since then. Mm -hmm. uh, so we said the obligation is universal, it's customary. Mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> unfortunately, uh, the merits of the cases uh, were not litigated uh, because the court decided in 2016 to dismiss the cases based on a narrow procedural ground. The court found that uh, the Marshall Islands had not sufficiently established a dispute with those countries, like, with, like via an exchange of letters, for example, before bringing the cases uh, to, uh, to the court. Uh, well, not all judges agreed with this. In fact, uh, in the case, uh, let's see, which was it? Uh, I think it was in the UK case, uh, the judges split eight to eight on that question. And it was carried by the president of the court, uh, 
a judge from uh, from France. Uh, so the the cases uh, did not go forward uh, to uh, the uh, the merits, um, and so we didn't we didn't get to see uh, uh, how the court would have ruled, among other things, on whether the disarmament obligation is uh, universal is is customary. Mm. But based on um, you know essentially what I learned while doing this work. You know, I became convinced that uh, the case was very, very strong for the obligation to be universal uh, and that the court uh, would have ruled that the obligation is universal. It's more or less implied in the court's 1996 advisory opinion mm-hmm. in, in which the court said there exists an obligation to pursue in good faith. Mm-hmm. and bring to a conclusion negotiations on nuclear disarmament in all its aspects under strict and uh, effective uh, international uh, control. Uh, uh, so to sum up, um, there is a very strong case that the disarmament obligation is universal. Mm-hmm. Therefore, all nine countries are obligated uh, to uh, negotiate and conclude negotiations on nuclear disarmament. Well, obviously, we are very, very far from that taking place. In fact, we're going backwards with, uh, especially with Russia's over-reliance on its nuclear arsenal in its invasion of Ukraine. Hmm. So could we, I mean, I guess we can probably not 100% establish whether Article 6 in the NPT would be a codification of customary law then, because... The court has never made like an official decision, or is that the case? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, then let's move on to the next question, which uh, is so, and the NPT is um, the pillar of the nuclear weapons regime, and it has received a lot of criticism, especially from non nuclear weapon states and also from civil society, because it was meant to be a transformation regime moving towards disarmament and, um, and, world free of nuclear weapons. I guess some disagree with that part, but yes, it definitely was supposed to move towards nuclear disarmament, um, but it has now turned into a status quo regime, privileging five states um, and seeming to give them kind of this legal basis for possessing their nuclear weapons. Um, Could you kind of address um, this issue in relation to the obligation to pursue nuclear disarmament in good faith? And could you also say, um, because we've already talked about it a bit now, uh, what do we actually mean by good faith negotiations in this context? Article six, uh, when uh, the treaty was negotiated, wasn't even proposed by the US and the Soviet Union uh, who wrote the uh, initial draft. But other states insisted Mm -hmm. that there had to be uh, a disarmament obligation. Well, the obligation as stated the NPT is quite general. One could even say vague. Uh, On the other hand, the preamble makes it clear that Mm -hmm. the objective is first of all to stop nuclear arms racing Mm -hmm. uh, at an early date, uh, and secondly, to achieve the global elimination of Mm -hmm. uh, nuclear weapons. That's very clear from the Mm -hmm. preamble to to the NPT. 
But Article 6 was not given much content mm. during the first few decades uh, of the NPT. After uh, uh, the Cold War ended with the dissolution of uh, the Soviet Union, uh, there was a revival of arms control and disarmament. And one aspect of that was the adoption of strong commitments on nuclear arms control and disarmament in the five-year review conferences of the NPT and also the indefinite extension of the NPT in 1995. Uh, so commitments were made in 1995, 2000, and 2010. And those were commitments to things like reducing the role of nuclear weapons and security policies, uh, negotiating and bringing the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty into force, uh, and uh, reducing and eliminate and uh, reducing nuclear arsenals uh, and moving toward their elimination through the uh, through the reductions. Hmm. Well, by and large, uh, those commitments have not been met. The Test Ban Treaty has not been brought into force, uh, partly because uh, you know the U.S. essentially has. Uh, partly due to just the way the Senate is mm -hmm. constituted in the United States and the requirement of two-thirds approval of the Senate for ratification, the U.S. has mm -hmm. taken a turn against multilateralism and did not uh, ratify uh, the Test Ban Treaty. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, negotiations on reductions of nuclear arms control or nuclear arms control have uh, been sporadic and uh, essentially uh, stalemated. Uh, the role of nuclear weapons has not been reduced in security policies. You know, at least in the case of Russia, on the contrary, it's been mm -hmm. increased and it was also increased to a significant extent, at least in the doctrine announced by, by the Trump administration. <clears throat> um, so you have a treaty which, at least starting in the 1990s, was supposed to be transformational. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that about it, you know, when it was first negotiated, but that's how it was understood in the 1990s. But that has, uh, that has not been carried out. Uh, this does not mean that uh, the uh, NPT recognizes that the five nuclear weapon states are entitled to permanently possess their nuclear arsenals. Quite the contrary, at least as a matter of legal analysis. On the other hand, it's true that those governments, uh, to some extent, it sort of varies depending on which government, tend to treat the NPT as kind of a permanent ar arrangement, which gives them that a privilege, if it, uh, it, if you want to uh, call it that. <clears throat> mm. uh, so you asked me about good faith. You want me to say something about good faith? Yes, please. <clears throat> I mean, even considering that some countries like 
um, China or France, UK will say, well, um, we are not going to participate in any negotiations until US and Russia will significantly decrease their arsenal because they have most of the weapons or what does it mean um, yeah, for, for maybe all of um, yeah, the international community or just even those five states or even the nine um, yeah, to pursue negotiations in good faith? There's a, a Latin phrase, uh, pacta sunt servanda. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that treaties shall be observed. Treaties shall be complied with. So if a state enters into a, a treaty, it is required to live up to its obligations under that treaty. Uh, one of the ways of of complying with your obligations is, or you're supposed to comply with your obligations in good faith. And, you know, that means that you're seeking to achieve the purposes mm -hmm. and objectives uh, of, of the treaty. Well, one of the objectives of the NPT is the cessation of the nuclear arms race at an early date. Uh, the, you know, the time frame for elimination of nuclear weapons is not really um, specified in, in any way in the NPT, but the time frame for stopping nuclear arms race is at an early date. Well, you know, an early date has passed. The, the treaty entered into force mm. in, in 1970. So um, the nuclear armed states should not be refining and enhancing and improving their nuclear arsenals, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, occurs in almost naturally when uh, governments maintain their arsenals over a long period of time, but beyond that, or replace their systems, but beyond that, uh, governments clearly do add systems that have additional uh, military uh, uh, capabilities. So that's uh, a good faith obligate, uh, a violation of, of the mm -hmm. NPT, undercutting uh, an objective of the NPT. Uh, and, you know, the position of my organization is that the time has passed for uh, multilateral negotiations on elimination of nuclear weapons to have started. In other words, they should have started some time ago, and they sh they should be started now. And you know that can be done in the context of the conference on disarmament. Uh, or in a special forum set up by the UN or in a forum set up by uh, the NPT. There's no problem mm -hmm. with designing a process for it. What it requires is the will to do so on, mm -hmm. on the part of the countries that, that uh, possess uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, this, uh, this crisis, and it's truly a crisis caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is still unfolding. Uh, and uh, it's important to, for a number of reasons, not 
and one of them is the risk of nuclear war to bring <clears throat> to bring that conflict to a close. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but uh, having said that, I will also say that in an optimistic sense, one could hope that <clears throat> uh, this uh, the Russia Russian war on Ukraine will have demonstrated to people the insanity, the Im immorality, the illegality of continuing to uh, rely on nuclear weapons and that it will spark, hopefully in the near future, uh, a, you know, a renewed um, energy uh, about pursuing nuclear arms control and disarmament, including through multilateral negotiations. So forgive me, just one more point about good faith. Okay. When there are negotiations, you're supposed to conduct them. This is well established in you know, international case law. You're supposed to conduct them so that they succeed or at least they have a chance to succeed. Mm -hmm. uh, so you don't prolong them unnecessarily. You're willing to entertain modifications of your original position. Uh, to reach a compromise and similar things. You conduct them so that they have a, at least a good chance of being successful. Yeah, yeah. well, thank you. Um, um, you already mentioned a little bit um, the fact that the modernization of arsenals kind of goes against the yeah, obligation for disarmament in Article 6 of the NPG. I just wanted to ask you, um, is there a way in which we could enforce this law or say, how can we, how can we um, yeah, um, punish violators, basically, internationally? Well, in a way, uh, you know, the Marshall Islands uh, sought to do that by bringing those cases in the International Court of Justice. And uh, that could be tried again, uh, but you know, one problem with that is that uh, most of the nuclear armed states have not accepted the jurisdiction of the court. Mm. Um, and UK modified its acceptance of jurisdiction so that such a case could not be brought against it uh, in the future. Uh, in, uh, another possibility uh, is to go back to the International Court of Justice and seek an advisory opinion on compliance with uh, the disarmament obligation. Now that's not quote enforcement mm. uh, of the disarmament obligation, but it would uh, be clarification of it and it would create uh, additional pressure. Uh, it's uh, somewhat hard to speak of enforcement uh, in uh, when you come to these really basic matters of global power politics in the way that you speak of enforcement, like if, uh, uh, you know, somebody uh, stole some personal property of yours and called the police and then the case went to court. It's, it's really not comparable to that, that sort of situation. Uh, but, you know, the non-nuclear weapon states have really tried to ramp up 
the political pressure through the negotiation of the TPNW. And you can be sure that at the five-year uh, non-proliferation uh, treaty review conference to take place in August, delayed for two years because of COVID, that there's going to be a lot of pressure placed on uh, the nuclear weapon states to uh, start complying with uh, the nuclear disarmament obligations. Hmm. Yeah, um, and I mean, I guess the fact that the P5, um, who all possess nuclear weapons, have a veto um, right in the Security Council doesn't make things easier in terms of enforcement either. <laughs> no, that is absolutely correct. Uh, it, because, um, you know, one, one, the Security Council has uh, been very energetic about uh, dealing with cases about countries acquiring or potentially acquiring nuclear weapons. Uh, mm -hmm. North Korea, uh, uh, Iran, Iraq, Libya, and, mm -hmm. and uh, others. <clears throat> uh, and it has occasionally said rather general things about nuclear arms control and disarmament. But it's it has not been energetic on on that side of things, so it's sort of a, a defect kind of built into the current international system that the five permanent members of the Security Council are also the five states who are acknowledged to have uh, mm -hmm. nuclear weapons by the Non-Proliferation Treaty. I think this is sort of uh, an accident of history in a way, but but. Uh, it is it is the case, it is the problem that we're dealing with, and this is partly why you have seen countries of the global south and other progressive states. Uh, they have found other ways to pursue sort of global uh, political change, uh, like the negotiation of the International Criminal Court, the Rome Statute, the 1990s or the negotiation of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Mm -hmm. Okay, I guess we're almost out of time, but I'd like to ask you one last question. And that's, um, in your opinion, would a world free from nuclear weapons be something desirable? And I guess we've already, I mean, talked a little bit about it, um, but um, yeah, how can we move towards such a goal and what would be your advice for young activists who aim to contribute towards the elimination of nuclear weapons? Uh, yes, a world without nuclear weapons uh, would be much better that, than the world we're living in now, even if it's still, which it probably would be, a world of conflict and tension uh, in, in, other, in other respects. You know, achieving such a world has to be and would be done uh, carefully. Uh, but uh, I really have, uh, you know, no patience for this really stupid idea that uh, there hasn't been major war among the world's leading powers since World War II. And therefore we should stick with the wonders of nuclear weapons indefinitely. It's, it's, it's running awful, awful risks. Mm -hmm. And it also sort of uh, morally compromises mm -hmm. uh, the world to, to, it's sort of like relying on torture 
for your security, except uh, the scale is uh, so much more vast in, in, in the case of, of nuclear weapons. <coughs> uh, well, you know, in terms of uh, young activists, it sort of depends on where you are. Because uh, I, I think that uh, the, the first thing to do is to act locally and nationally. So uh, is your city uh, a nuclear free city? Has it, has it joined uh, mayors for peace? Uh, uh, it, does your country take good positions in the UN? TPNW, uh, NPT, uh, you know, so this, this requires working with other people in, in your country or locality, working on such issues and, you know, becoming informed about uh, the positions of your government. And, and, you know, beyond that, there are international uh, networks, there are international uh, youth networks, uh, uh, disarmament networks, mm -hmm. and there are also general international networks, the Abolition 2000 Network to Eliminate Nuclear Weapons, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which uh, works on uh, the TPNW. Uh, and, you know, just by joining into such groups and networks, you can immediately learn a lot about the, mm -hmm. the problem. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for sharing your knowledge with us today. And yeah, I appreciate it a lot. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have been able to spend some time with you. Thank you. A big thank you to our expert, Dr. John Burroughs, for sharing his insights. And thank you also to our listeners for joining us for this episode. For now, this will be our last episode of the Youth Fusion International Law Podcast Series. We hope you enjoyed this podcast series and that you were able to deepen your knowledge about nuclear weapons issues in international law. Feel free to check out our website at www.youth-fusion.org, where you can also find an article version of this episode. Youth Fusion is a worldwide networking platform for young individuals and organizations in the field of nuclear disarmament, risk reduction, and non-proliferation. We focus on youth action and intergenerational dialogue, building on the links between disarmament, peace, climate action, sustainable development, and building back better from the pandemic. Our goals are clear to inform, educate, connect, and engage our fellow students, activists, and enthusiasts. Through these activities and as part of the Abolition 2000 Network, we are contributing to the total abolition of nuclear weapons. Once again, thank you for listening and goodbye for now.